Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And I'd like to first ask, uh, Scripture says, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. The Scripture says, No man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. Can you say Jesus is Lord? Is he your personal Lord? Is he your personal Lord and Savior? Then if you have been able to confess honestly, truthfully, sincerely that Jesus Christ is your Lord, by the Word of God, we have the authority to say that we do have the Holy Spirit of God. And I think it's a good exhortation to be reminded of that as possessors of the Holy Spirit, we need to have the Lord possess or us yield ourselves more to the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He's talking about both those that had already possessed the Holy Spirit, but the exhortation was to walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit. That's, that's the exhortation of the child of God. In the book of Galatians, it says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect through the flesh? I had some Pentecostals visit me one time and said, Brother, we're here to, to, to lay hands on you so you can be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, so you can be blessed. I says, Brother, I am blessed beyond measure. I am blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Scripture says, after that you heard the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. So praise the Lord. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of God within you. And we're told to walk worthy of the Lord. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to live a life that commends itself to God and that people around can take notice and say, he, she has been with Jesus because we have his Spirit of God that dwells within us. So the exhortation is really be filled with the Spirit because you're not a child of God unless you have the Holy Spirit of God. Turn with me again, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7 to 12. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Now, these verses are going to sound strange in the light of many other passages and truths of the Bible. But this is what the Word of God states right here in this context. Verse 6. Let your garment always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might or all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, that's the afterlife, to which you are going. Verse 11, Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happens to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it falls suddenly upon them. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. The title of this sermon is Que Sera Sera. How many of you know that song? Que Sera Sera Sera. 
How many, how, how's it go? Whatever will be, will be. The future, not ours to see. Que sera, sera. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mummy, what shall I be? Her mother said, I don't know what you're going to be. Only God holds the future. And that's kind of how the book of Ecclesiastes is. What does the future hold? Whatever will be, will be is the, is the perspective from which the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, who we've said over and over again, it may or may not be Solomon, but it's Solomon-like wisdom, you could say. The word is for the meaning, the word kolet in Hebrew means the preacher or the teacher. And here he is writing what we could probably say is uh, rather confusing, maybe. A major challenge in reading the book of Ecclesiastes is in determining how to read the joy passages in light of the meaninglessness commentators take different stands on. So that sort of, you could say that flux between uh, how do you read these joy passages and yet it's all with the background of meaninglessness, vanity of vanities. Here are some of the different positions that commentators have taken on the book of Ecclesiastes. One is advocating, or a group is advocating, that seeking pleasure amidst the meaningless of life. That's a goal that the author is proposing. Secondly, a different view of life that the teacher cannot reconcile with his findings. Third, read it as the answer to the teacher's problems. Read it as an answer to the teacher's problems. You see, the tension that Ecclesiastes presents is a challenge to know how to live life to the fullest, and yet at the same time recognizing its futility. How do you live life to the fullest? I think that should be a goal of all of us. How do I live my life to the fullest? We always think, I don't want to waste time, or that's a waste of time, or that's meaningless. There's nothing, there's nothing redemptive about doing this or doing that. That's good to take that into consideration. How do we live? How do we live in this world? You know, some people think too much, and some people think too little. I don't know what category you would put yourself in, but... In some ways, both of them can be dangerous. If you think too much, it could cause you to go crazy. If you think too little, you might live crazy. The one, thinks, the one that thinks too much is like the preacher who plunges himself deeper and deeper into despair when he is faced with the enigmas of life. When things don't work out the way, they're expected to. In other words, these disappointments that we have to face causes us to wonder, boy, what, what's going on out there? What is this all about? You know, the word Lord is nowhere used in the book of Ecclesiastes. The name of God or God is used 37 different times. God is kind of the term, you could say, for it's much more ambiguous. It's much more aloof, uh, more of a title that could be somewhat vague as compared to the word Lord. Now, both of them are accurate and true, of course, but when you use the word Lord, there's more of a person of intimacy with than God being some sort of a sterile, uh, sovereign God who's over everything that we don't have any connection to. 
almost like he's stern and he's unapproachable. He's not personable. He's not friendly. He's not relational. You know, when you get saved, God's character to you changes. It doesn't, his character doesn't change, but our relationship to him changes. And therefore, things become new and different in our lives. Like I said, God is used 37 times throughout it. But it's somewhat in a distant and a sterile way. The author obviously is a strong God believer. But relationally, he appears to be weak, possibly. God is not exactly criticized, but there's a silent sense that his perception of God is almost deistic-like. God is somewhere behind the scenes and not clearly detected. That's what a deist is, is someone who believes in God, but a God that is not interactive in the lives of human beings here on earth or even in the affairs that face us in this world. A lot of our forefathers had that perspective of God, more of a deistic perspective, because... And it's somewhat understandable because we're not living in the days when Red Seas open up or where, where uh, water is turned into wine or bread is multiplied to feed thousands of people. Not able to put fingers in the hands of Jesus, etc., etc. We could think of it as somewhat of a drawback that we don't have those sort of privileges But at the same time, faith has become our substitute for that. Like the Lord said to Thomas, because you have seen, you believe, but blessed are they that have not seen, but yet believe. You know, the Jews seek after a sign that's required of them, so to speak. Sometimes people are like that. They require a miracle for God to prove themselves to them. But God does not display himself in the fashion that he did in previous days of the past, but has other means. Not that he doesn't still do miracles or not that he can't show up in a miraculous way and show himself to bypass or override the natural causes that we are accustomed to from a scientific and empirical standpoint. You see, Ecclesiastes, this book, is like a setup book for others' books of the Bible to kind of complete the story. It's like one side of the coin and the rest of the Bible gives you the other side of the coin. It's like when the Passover was to be eaten, it had to be eaten with bitter herbs. You know, the bitter herbs, why would bitter herbs be eaten? The bitter herbs gave a proper and a more enjoyable flavor and taste to the, ro- to the roasted lamb. And in some ways, you can think of the book of Ecclesiastes that way. It's sort of like setting the stage. It's preparing for better answers, a conclusion that's not concluded in the book of Ecclesiastes itself. It's certainly not a part, it's certainly a part of the canonical, of the canon, I should say. It certainly is inspired of God by the Holy Spirit, undoubtedly. We don't question that. But and this is not my own perspective. I've read commentaries on this, and it's amazing the span of differences that commentators have about the book of Ecclesiastes. It's sort of like a dirt road that you're waiting for the paved road. 
you know, you, you, you're going over these bumps and humps and all this, and then when's the, when's the paved road coming? Well, the book of Ecclesiastes is sort of like the dirt road that's leading to the paved road. It's like kind of John the, John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord. So there really is a lot of profit in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's like an appetizer that is eaten before the main course. It's stirring up the desire to try to get a fuller explanation. You know, some of its verses, especially if you're taking them out of the context, they could be placed on the back of a yacht with a yacht name called Hedonist. There's a lot of things that almost promote a life of frolic and pleasure that could be interpreted hedonistically, like Come on, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Some of these verses could almost be used as a kind of a modern-day commercial to promote products. Sort of like what I've said before, quoting the old Schlitz beer commercial, you only go around once in life, so you grab all the gusto you can. Well, that's kind of where the book of, of Ecclesiastes is coming from. Grab for all the gusto you can, because you only go around once in life. There's little to nothing said about the afterlife, certainly nothing positive said about the afterlife. It leaves you more in the lurch, like, what? This is all there is? This is it? The author is saying, as far as he can see, as far as he knows, this is the life. Go for it. Live it to the fullest. Some of these passages even could be said amen by the atheist. Sounds like a radical term, and I'm not saying that irreverently. And I could show you many passages that give you that sense of eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow you die. You know, there are different kinds of people who are all God's people. Everybody is a creation of God. Not everybody's a child of God. It says in Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all they that dwell therein. Everybody is accountable to God. Everybody lives under the eye of God. The Bible says whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. That could be applied to every human being. We are all under the authority of God, our Creator. There are four ways, and and, and this, I think, will help us to maybe how we interpret and how we look at truth in general, and maybe how we can evaluate the book of Ecclesiastes. There are four ways or kinds of people who relate to God. I doubt that anybody in this room, at any time in your past, Wilfredo with his testimony and everybody else, as you go back in your life, there definitely was, wouldn't you say, Always a sense of God out there. Some way, somehow, God was there. Here, in my opinion, are the different kinds of people and how they relate to God. The first two are unsaved people. For them, one of the categories of the two is that God is a non-entity. He's not factored in any of their life circumstances. God is just, either from an atheistic standpoint or an agnostic standpoint, an agnostic would say, yeah, there might be a God, but so what, big deal. An atheist would say, 
from everything that I know and see, there's no God. But either way, they both would probably be motivated the same way because they don't have any hope, they don't have any prospects, they don't have any accountability. It says in Psalm 10, 4, the wicked are estranged from the womb. No, no, uh, excuse me, that's another verse. It says the wicked, um, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all their thoughts. God is not in all their thoughts. I bet you know people like that. And maybe you are somebody like that too in your lifetime that God was just not in your thoughts. He was not a factor. You never attributed your health, your well-being. You never looked at the stars in the sky. You never considered the beautiful landscapes that we have all around us that all breathe loud words that God is real, that he's true. He's the creator. But the natural man's eyes are blinded. As it says in the book of Romans, they suppress truth in unrighteousness. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Certainly man is without excuse for believing in God. Nevertheless, they're able to suppress the reality of God by their unbelief. Suppressing is like trying to put a big balloon underwater, trying to submerge it. It wants to come up. It wants to buoy itself up. That's how the unconverted person is. They want to suppress God. They don't want him to come up, so they do everything in their power with their intellectual folly to try to refute the reality of God. That's one kind of an unbelieving person. The other one, and I'll say unsaved rather, because we do have believers who are not saved. I think many of us believed in in the Lord, believed in God, believed in probably the fundamentals of Christianity, the the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection, the crucifixion, and so on and so forth. But that didn't save us. We believed, but we didn't have redemptive faith. We weren't born again. You could say we didn't have the Holy Spirit. We were born natural without the Spirit, only a human spirit until we put faith in Jesus and then we become children of the Spirit as well. In this case, God is marginalized. He, he plays no significant role in that person's life. He sort of superstitiously regards God in a distant and a non-integral way. He's hidden from everyday life and is only around when circumstances arise like a medication in a medicine cabinet. He's available when you need him because you believe there's a God, you believe in God, but he's not relevant in your life until circumstances arise and now all of a sudden you call upon him or you're asking for something. He's known as the guy upstairs, the big guy, the boss. Words that are offensive to, I think, us who know the Lord who talk about God in that sort of uh, unfamiliar way and bringing him down to terms that are not very commendable to refer to God that way. But I think we we meet lots of people like this that are, quote, God-believing people. But God is not central at all in their lives. He's only on the shelf if you need him. 
in hopes that maybe he will respond to your request or your desire. Now let's talk about the two categories of born-agains. I'm looking at an audience of people that I think probably 98% of you, or maybe all of you, I don't know, God knows those that are his, believe on the Lord Jesus. You've been born anew. You've had an experience that's come from above. You were born naturally, but then you had a spiritual birth, a spiritual awakening. You came to know Jesus in a way that you never knew him before. And maybe you made the sign of the cross. You might have bowed the knee. You might have prayed the Our Father prayer, but there was no genuine knowledge of him. He wasn't in your life personally. Let's talk about two categories of born-agains. Every believer in Jesus, of course, is indwelt with Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, to as many as received him, to them he gives the authority to become children of God. I will dwell in them and walk in them. Certainly we have Christ in us. Jesus is the born again's Lord and Savior. There's no such thing as Jesus being your Savior, you're not your Lord. Those two terms are yoked together. Jesus doesn't have different kinds of relationships with his people or we with him. Granted, someone may not be walking in a way that's commendable to being under the lordship of Christ, but that doesn't mean Jesus isn't his Lord. We wouldn't want to say that he's only my Savior, not my Lord. I remember that expression 25 years ago that was kind of bantered about as people were trying to categorize some Christians as carnal Christians versus spiritual Christians. No such thing in the Bible as categorized as being carnal. We could talk more about that if time permitted, but we're not going to this morning. For this person, yes, Jesus is their Lord and Savior, but they have a casual, a conditional, and an occasional relationship with the Lord. They know him, but somewhat distantly. Communion with him is conditional. There's not often enough room for him in the inn. He's more a visitor than a resident. Hmm. I think this is reality. I think we find lots of Christians that are very stagnant in their Christian lives. Um, they're not pursuing the things of God as they should be. they There's a lack of fervency, of zeal, of hunger for the word, hunger for fellowship, hunger to worship and desire to want to worship the true and the living God. They're born again for sure. But you could say there's a stalemate in their lives. They're just content with saying a morning prayer, maybe reading a passage out of the scriptures, and then maybe saying goodnight, Lord, at the end of the day. And that pretty much is their communion with the Lord. And they're real children of God. And it may be a state that they have fallen into, or maybe it's just a stage that they have never matured out of. But let's talk about the other category that I would say of people who are born again. Those that have, and I want you to look at this verse. Can we put this verse up there, Michael? Um, Ephesians 3, 16, that says, this is a Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your being. Stop there for a second. That's what he was praying. For 
the church of believers of Ephesus, who he knows, because he writes to them, after that you heard the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the spirit who's indwelling all of these Ephesians, Paul is saying, I'm praying this prayer for you that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner man or your inner being. That's a beautiful prayer. And think of it. What Paul is saying is there's more. There's more in the Christian life that you can have. There's more about Jesus that you can learn. There's more areas that you can grow in and and be grateful and praiseful and you'll have more joy in your personal life. Because Paul goes on to say that you might understand the depth and the, the, the riches, the breadth, the length and depth and height of the love of God. But let's turn to the second part of verse 17. Why does he pray that they be with strengthened in the inward man? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I want to stop there. So that Christ may dwell. I want to underscore the word may. That Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now wait a minute. Isn't Jesus already in your heart, your heart, your heart? Every one of you who have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ is in you. He dwells in you. He resides in you. How can Paul be praying that he would be that they would be strengthened in the inward man that Christ may? Now this seems to be a condition that Christ may dwell. Some interpreters have looked at this word, and I like I like the idea of it. The dwelling here is more of a being at home, a comfort for the Lord to dwell in you rather than a relationship with God or with the Lord that is somewhat estranged. Now that sounds weird to talk about a believer having an estranged relationship with the Lord. And I don't mean it, that's probably the wrong adjective to use, but not having the intimacy with Jesus. And I'm telling you publicly, I want to have a more intimate relationship with Jesus. I don't want to just read the Bible and know all of these things and and Jesus is still sort of out of the orbit of my life. The Spirit needs to minister to my inner being and your inner being so we would be strengthened so that we might have Christ dwelling in us through faith. And I would say those, this would probably fit the first and, and, and help us understand the second category that maybe not all believers are living their life through faith because their faith is stagnant. It's cemented. It's fixed. Maybe your lifestyle, I was talking to a fellow that called me, a brother in the Lord, a long distance call, and he wanted to some ministry, some helps, and he says, brother, I get up at four in the morning. He's a general contractor, I believe, and he says, I don't get home till seven at night. That's my day. And when I get home, I'm dead tired. I want to go to bed. Some of you can relate to that. That makes it difficult, doesn't it, to try to, where does the Lord fit in in, in the equation? We're not living in New Testament times. That's why we have to transfer things in the Word to our present day, in your, your life circumstances. What is your day like? What is your week like? How is your time spent? You know, do you read the newspaper? You watch the TV? You go to movies? You're on your computer, et cetera, et cetera. All those things take up time. Where is the Lord in our life that we might be strengthened by the Spirit in the inward man? Now, what does this have to do with K, Sada, Sada, whatever will be, will be? 
If we go back to our text, and I know I'm running short a little bit, Paul, uh, the, the author is saying, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Again, this is the standpoint from which the author is coming. All right? Let your garments be always with white. Let no oil be lacking on your head. This is talking about being chipper, be upbeat, be happy, be joyful. Verse 9, enjoy the life with, with the wife whom you love. This makes it possible that Solomon is not the author since he had 700 wives. How could he be saying enjoy life with the wife who you love? I wonder who that would be out of the 700, huh? might ask that kind of question. It was a little enigmatic to say the least. Um, either way, the exhortation, and here's one, a wonderful example of a strong admonition to, to men, husbands, love your wives, love them all the days of your vain life. There it is again, like, wow, another slap in the face of vanity of vanity. He's always got to kind of bring that line in that is mentioned numerous times throughout this book. This wife that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. You know, this book could almost be interpreted in a fatalistic way, like, whatever will be, will be, as if there's no sense of God's intimate controlling of factors in someone's life. But like I said, it, this is only a book that whets appetite for hey, I want to hear the conclusion of the matter. You left me kind of empty and dry. And there's a purpose for that, and God must have a reason for that so that we can discover that, hey, yes, I, I did experience in my life a time when I was dry, where I was listless, where I felt depressed. There was no hope for me. There was no brightness for the future ahead of my life. And I just thought I was sort of like dust in the wind. And the wind blows wherever it wants. And I don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. Thank God that we have 65 other books that give us sort of the conclusion of the matter. And we could take a, pot, a lot of these verses and say, let's look at the counterpart verses, counterpoint verses that really don't contradict but simply add an answer this vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And if you as a Christian have ever gotten depressed, don't read the book of Ecclesiastes. Because he's writing from a standpoint where he's like flustered, frustrated, perplexed. Yet God is still there in the background. He still pops up in his communications throughout the book. And I love these last two passages. Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the strong. No bread to the wise, no riches to the intelligent, no favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happens to them all. You know, this is just the opposite of the way in which lingo and mottos, slogans are used today that tell you that, look, you can be the best. You can succeed. You can be an achiever. And I'm not necessarily downing these things, but what the author here is saying is you can, you can be the strongest, you can be the wisest, the richest, and have all of these luxuries of 
gifts naturally. You can run the fastest. You can be the strongest, etc. But still, it doesn't solve the problem. Why? Verse 12, for man does not know his time. You don't know when it's going to all end. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and the birds that are caught in a snare. So are the children of man snared at an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. There it is. Again, the author bringing down the curtain like suddenly, like unexpectedly. The door is shut. It's all over. It's ended. When I was working at a youth camp, the first year I got saved, just a few months afterwards actually, I went there and during the course of the summer months, one of the counselors that had come there was trying to illustrate this verse. And what he did is he set up, he apparently had this and, and made this or bought it, I don't know, but it was a, it was a big net made out of very fine silk fabric so that if you were standing say 20 feet away, you wouldn't even notice it was there. It, it, it was like invisible. He had set it up. It was probably as high as here, uh, uh, to the roof here, and maybe half the, 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 the width of this room. And he set it up with, you know, tying it up with trees and whatnot. And he got all the kids together there, and guess what was happening? Birds were flying in it left and right, and they were getting caught in the net. Here they oh flying freely, like normal, thinking everything's okay, and suddenly they're caught, trapped. And he had like dozens of birds that were caught in the, in the net, just like a fisherman who throws out his, his net out in the school, out in the waters, and he comes up with a school of fishes. So it is too with death. That's how the author is, is uh, portraying it. But, you know, thank God that a greater than Solomon is here. Thank God that we have the addition of our Lord Jesus Christ who can give us answers to these quests of our lives so that we have a purpose to live. We have a goal to which we're living for. For me to live, Paul says, is Christ and to die is gain. That's like, boy, I bet Solomon would love to have read that. To live is Christ and to die is gain. As far as Ecclesiastes is concerned, it's a loss. When you die, the lights are out. The game is over. Not so in the New Testament. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We do look forward to the day when we will die. It's our escort to heaven. It's not like, oh no, I'm going to be in the grave. I'm going to go to the place where there's no knowledge or nothing is, is, is known there. That's Ecclesiastes language. That's where Jehovah Witness picks up these kinds of verses and say, see, there's nothing after death. They don't understand how that this book fits into the whole canon of the scriptures and how there are other verses. Just like Jesus said about those in the Old Testament, he says, many righteous men would desire to see the things that you see and to hear the things that you see. Because Jesus is saying, I've brought to light the things that were otherwise in kind of the... The, the darkness in the twilight. I've enlightened people. I've, I've brought truth to the, to the forefront so that we can have a greater revelation and a greater understanding. Your guess is as good as mine in a way. You read the book of Ecclesiastes. 
You tell me what kind of conclusion you can come to. This is not an easy book to handle, and we can't properly handle it isolationally from the rest of the Bible. There are obviously many perplexing sayings that the author of of the book makes, but thankfully we have the answers, and even he himself, and I have to mention this from time to time because you'd say, boy, that doesn't seem right. Something doesn't seem right. Well, I think it's kind of all wound up at the very end in the last chapter when the author says, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter, which is what? Two things. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. He waits to the very end to tell you that. In the beginning, it's like he's going through this stage and it's troubling him over and over again. And then he comes to the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. That's a great thing to keep in our minds. That can apply to all believers of all times. Fear God, keep his commandments. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and worship and thanks for the truth that is in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that even though uh, we have our responsibilities, Lord, in this life, and we pray, Lord, you would teach us how to live our lives, Lord, accordingly to the calling that you have called us to, with the gifts that you have given us, with the people that you've put around us, the church that we belong to, the neighborhood that we live in, the jobs that we have. Lord, we all have different circumstances and situations of life. Help us, Lord, to live our lives to your glory and honor. Help us, Lord, to not despair. This is a tough time of the year for many, even Christians, Lord, for some strange reason, Lord. seems as though the devil almost works overtime at, at times like this. But we ask, Lord, that you would help us to keep, keep our eye fixed on the Lord Jesus, looking unto Jesus. Yes, Lord, that's what we want to do, the author and the finisher of our faith. So, Lord, we give you the praise, the worship, and the thanksgiving for your beloved Son, In Jesus Christ's precious and worthy name, amen.